You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. And today I'd like to start out by reminding you once again that there is an entire website behind us called wealthformula.com. And wealthformula.com has all sorts of interesting downloads, including a copy of my book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth, which you can also simply download by texting me at 44222 and uh, simply texting the word wealth formula, one word. Again, that's 44222 and put in wealth formula and you'll get that book. Now, the other things I want to remind you of is that if you go to wealthformula.com, you can also uh, ask me a question or, or make some kind of a comment or a wisecrack, whatever you want. Go to SpeakPipe and just record it, and we'll use it on the next Ask Buck show. We've got a few waiting in line. We need some more. We need some. I want to get you involved with this, so make sure to go and go to wealthformula.com and make sure you go to that SpeakPipe function. It's super cool. And finally, don't forget, there's an entire course and there's a community behind this called the Wealth Formula Network. You can check all that out at wealthformularoadmap.com. The community in particular has been uh, very, very uh, interesting. We have bi-weekly calls. And now you can actually download the app. You don't have to be part of Wealth Formula Network to download the app. But I highly recommend you go ahead and do that anyway. Download the Wealth Formula app from your usual, whether it's iTunes, whatever, and uh, that'll make it a lot easier uh, to be more engaged with the show, especially if you're a part of Wealth Formula Network, because you'll be able to access the forum directly through there, and um, there'll be all sorts of fun stuff, so check that out. Now, let's talk today about uh, you know our, our mindset in general. Well, not so much mindset as much as our um, you know, the way we view the world. I mean, if you listen to my show, uh, there's a good chance you listen to other shows with similar themes and opinions. I should say similar because it's, it's, mine's a little different, I think. Because in my niche, the one ongoing theme is that the zombie apocalypse is just around the corner. The zombie apocalypse is, of course, another financial meltdown reminiscent of 2008 or even worse. So if you've read uh, Jim Rickard's the road to ruin, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And to be fair, it could be on its way. I'm not saying it's not. I don't know. The problem is that people started saying that almost as soon as the last recovery began. And a decade later, a lot of people have made a lot of money by not sitting on the sidelines. You know, and I have to admit, I've, I've been guilty of this a little bit myself. And I, I'll be completely honest with you. I've I've felt uh, pessimistic in the last couple of years. And in the meantime, you know, maybe I should have taken some, uh, maybe I should have gotten into some things that I didn't. It's just hard. You can't really predict the future. I mean, I've been concerned about the economy for the last couple of years, and I still am. But we also have to understand, again, that we cannot predict the future. The next recession may very well happen next month, and it may happen in a couple of years. But even if it happens next month, it may not be that big deal at all. You know, it used to be that there was something called an economic cycle where things went up a little bit and down a little bit and the Fed could intervene. And, you know, most of our lives, we haven't, you know, noticed those things happening that dramatically, right? 
It's because they haven't. 2008 was an exception. So just recession does not necessarily mean zombie apocalypse, although it could. It could be that avalanche that Jim Rickards has been predicting for years. So what do you do, right? What do you do? Well, first, in my opinion, you've got to listen to people outside your own circles a little bit. This real asset investing community out there who listens to my show and who listens to other shows that are related, it's, it's a good thing, but it can also be dangerous sometimes. It can sometimes create an echo chamber, you know, a small community uh, is sometimes like living in an echo chamber where everyone seems to be saying the same thing. In fact, I remember that back in April of 2017 on the Real Estate Guys Summit at Sea, which I recommend highly, I'll be there next year in March, I met Robert Kiyosaki and um, we were, you know, we'd watch a bunch of really interesting talks and I asked him what he thought about all the speakers and what they were saying. And he told me, to my surprise a little bit, that he was a little bit worried. And when I asked him why I had assumed that, he, you know, just because the economy was uh, going to tank or something like that, and he was worried about that. But no, he, that's not what he said. He said he was a little worried because everyone seemed to be agreeing with each other too much. He said, it makes me wonder what I'm missing. Now, that's an intelligent man, right? This is a real phenomenon that we all need to check ourselves on, including me. And it's because that as tribes, we tend to congregate around a core set of belief systems, which may become so pervasive that opinion or belief can be misconstrued as fact, as reality. In other words, make sure you listen uh, to multiple sources to get your information. Listen to people with whom you disagree as well as with those you agree. And when you disagree, try to articulate why. Don't just be emotional about it. You know, people who have taken a chicken little approach to investing over the past five years, you know, they lost a lot of money by not making it. Like they look, you know, a lot of these people have been pounding the table predicting recessions and zombie apocalypse for the past five years are looking a little foolish right now, in my opinion. Now, listen, that's fine if you did your research and that's the independent conclusion you came to, but if you did so just because you follow one doomsday economist who never has anything positive to say, you probably got to start branching out a little bit. You got to broaden your horizons, right? Why? Because one economist is usually not always right. That's just the reality. I mean, uh, economists are people too. They have opinions. They have things. But the reality is that it, it, things are virtually impossible to predict with 100% accuracy all the time. Now, one economist who I have been following uh, is someone uh, you might wish to add to your repertoire of people to listen to when it comes to actually, you know, making some opinions about what you think is going to happen. Um, and he's actually considered a mainstream voice in the financial world and one that I consider to be one of the more balanced. His name's Doug Duncan, and he is the chief economist at Fannie Mae. And when we come back, Doug will tell us exactly how he feels about the rest of 2018 and beyond. Welcome back to the show, everyone. My guest today on Wealth Formula Podcast was named one of Bloomberg Business, Bloomberg and Business Week's 50 
most powerful people in real estate. He is Fannie Mae's source for information and analysis on the external business and economic environment, the implications of changes in the economic environment to the company's strategy and execution, and forecasting for housing activity, demographics, overall economic activity, and mortgage market activity. Please welcome back Doug Duncan to the show. Doug, how you been? I'm doing well. Glad to be here. Good to be uh, invited back. That's always the key for an economist is getting invited back. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, so uh, you were you were on the show almost exactly a year ago, um, mm-hmm. and a lot has happened since then. You know, we got we got a new president. Um, we were on the brink of nuclear war for a while with North Korea. Uh, we got some big tax cuts. How's this economy doing now compared to a year ago? Uh, it's actually doing better. Uh, it's picked up some. Uh, we actually expect that the uh, four, second quarter growth, uh, when it's annualized, will look somewhere between 35 and 4% growth. So pretty wow. strong expectation uh, for the quarter. That For the year, we expect growth to be uh, a bit higher this year than it than it was last year. So doing okay. Yeah. So I mean, so last time you were on uh, the show again, mm-hmm. it was almost exactly a year ago. We were sitting there. It was a um, you know, I, I think it's, it was the third longest period in U.S. history without a recession, and it was also the most sluggish. Right? Has that component changed? The sluggish aspect. I mean, obviously, three and a half percent, four percent growth is great, but do you see that as a uh, trend? I mean, where where do you see, how do you see this thing all coming together here? Well, what well, what we saw in the second half of last year after we had talked was a, a pickup in uh, business fixed investment, which we, we interpreted as a result of the reduction in the level of regulation. When the new administration came in, they, they significantly dropped the issuance of new regulation. And the, the biggest response that there was in the policy environment was to that because healthcare reform didn't happen and tax reform didn't happen until almost the very end of the year. But small business in particular, and in particular domestically uh, domiciled uh, companies, saw that drop in regulation issuance as a, as a real positive and uh, business fixed investment pickup. So we started gaining some steam. Then we had the tax cut. Um, and the, the tax cut is uh, basically a bet, some of which is, seems to be paying off, some of which remains to be seen. And the, the bet goes as follows. Um, if you cut corporate taxes, the hurdle rate for a successful additional investment is now lower. And so you should see a pickup in, in business investment. That would, in turn, uh, offer to their employees an improvement in productivity. That improvement in productivity could generate wage gains, which the Fed wouldn't see as inflationary because they were driven by productivity. And then on the consumer side, with the tax cut to most consumers, their returns, their after-tax returns to providing labor go up. And so you should see people come off the sidelines and go to work. We're seeing each of those things, uh, with the exception perhaps of the productivity gains, and that usually lags the investment anyway. The company makes the purchase, they implement the investment, and then it takes a little while to get their workers trained up. 
and to see the improvements in productivity. So it's not surprising we haven't seen that pick up yet, and maybe we won't. We'll we'll see, but that's the nature of the bet. And and what has happened is um, the first quarter this year was better than the first quarter last year. We expect the second quarter this year to be better than the second quarter last year. We expect this to go on uh, in into mid to late 2019 when we expect there'll be some slowdown. Yeah. So help me understand that a little bit better. Help us understand. Um, because when you look at, you know, I mean, we, we've been hearing about um, being at the top of the cycle, so to speak, uh, for a few years now. Um, mm -hmm. You know, even I remember even starting this podcast a couple of years ago, I was already talking about it then. And uh, of course, some people are are uh, laughing about that now. But now we're seeing all of these things that seem to be extending this. Mm -hmm. Is this, uh, is this you know, some sort of exception to the rule when it comes to typical market cycles? Or is this just, you know, just a prolonged variation? Well, uh, in terms of where we are, uh, we're now in the second longest economic expansion that we've ever had. As of August 2019, it will become the longest. Uh, just because it is long doesn't mean it, it has to end. They typically, the statement you'll hear is uh, expansions don't die of old age, they die of a cause. Irrespective of that, they all do end. And uh, given that you're approaching the longest that we've ever had, it seems reasonable to consider what the risks are. Uh, one of the counter arguments people give is, well, but it's been one of the weakest expansions. In fact, up until the last year, it was the yeah. weakest <clears throat> expansion since World War II. So now you have a couple of stimulative activities. You've had a tax cut. You've had a reduction in the pace of regulation. You've had uh, an increase in spending at the federal level. All of those things would suggest that you would see some extension in the time of this expansion. Of course, working against that, you have the Fed starting to raise interest rates, and eventually when they raise interest rates, it starts to bite. Uh, what's the, what's, how are those two things going to come together to create an end to this expansion remains to be seen. Uh, but as I mentioned, we, we do have growth slowing uh, toward the end of 2019, partly because the the uh, uh, tax cut and stimulus spends will be start to wane uh, in terms of their influence at that time. And the expectation today, according to their own statements, is that the Federal Reserve will be raising interest rates into next year. So all of those things will come together. Right. When it, when things correct and say it's you know mid to late 2019, whenever. I can't uh, count the number of people who have uh, effectively predicted some sort of zombie apocalypse uh, at that <laughs> point. What do you think, based on where we are uh, in, in terms of the economy compared to, say, the what may have been the closest we came to a zombie, zombie apocalypse in, the, in 2008, what do things look like? And when, when, when there's a recession, what does that look like? I mean, it used to be that a recession was just part of the cycle, not like when people used to flee for the mountains, right? I mean, so, <laughs> I mean. Well, <laughs> so, yeah, the, yeah, the, the um, 
what I've learned about the whole zombie situation is that in the future, chain link fences don't work. <laughs> uh, but, um, uh, you know, there, it is, it, it, uh, there's not an example, or a, I, I guess I would say I would not completely exclude the possibility of a really dramatic downturn because we, you know, we had one in the not too distant fast, but uh, past, but, for example, banks are better capitalized today than they were when that started. You don't have some of the excesses in the mortgage market that you had back then. So uh, um, the, the main reason people are worried about the apocalypse is there's no question that the size of our debt is large relative to the economy, and it's increasing. And so it's the sense that at some point that has to be paid back, and that is true. Now, to pay it back, basically, a simple way that that could happen if Washington chose to get together and put it in place is you simply have to have the economy growing faster than expenses are growing. And over time, then that reduces that debt. And that's what we've done in, the, in past periods. Typically, when we fought a war and run up debt in, for the course of uh, fighting a war, in this instance, I think one of the reasons you get more stories that are apocalyptic is because the run-up in debt is not a function primarily of a global war. Uh, there has been some war underway, but it's not been all-encompassing like World War II, uh, for example. And so people are questioning whether the, the will exists in Washington to get our fiscal situation under control. Our personal view is that more likely than not that there will be a more modest recession when recession comes and by that I mean unemployment may be rising to seven or eight percent um, in which case the Fed cuts interest rates the uh, level of unemployment moving to that level for example slows the demand for housing so the price of house price, appreciation or the pace of house price appreciation slows. And for the 92% that are still in the market and uh, the share that want to buy a house, housing may actually provide a cushion for the downside. That's not to say that's the only scenario that you can, uh, that you can derive. But I think the, the uh, recency of the magnitude of downturn that we had uh, militates that the near-term recession, which will come, will be more mild. That said, in the absence of reforming of entitlements, which is where the real budget issue is down the road, the next one could be pretty rough. And that's uh, uh, that we're talking about, um, you know, maybe probably 10, 10 years 10, from now. 15 Twelve yeah. years down yeah. the road, something like that. Yeah, I've I've heard actually multiple economists or mainstream economists, not the the zombie kind, but the mainstream ones, talk about this year around twenty twenty seven or so, uh, with a with a huge demographic problem. Is that kind of what you're referring to? With uh, it, it is, it yeah. is, and you'll see. I I read a piece the other day, and I have not looked up on their website, but you can look on the. Uh, Social Security Administration's website and their trustees uh, produce a, an assessment of the health of the uh, the of the fund, and uh, it it becomes 
payment out of uh, general revenues uh, somewhere around that time frame, if I recall correctly. Yeah. And and that's actually the easy one of the entitlements to reform. All you have to do is change the the eligibility age by a few years and do that over time, not immediately, but over time, and you can extend that uh, fund for some time. That's the simpler one. Medicare and Medicaid are the more complex issues, and they too are quickly going to become significant drags on the federal fiscal situation. So going back to sort of some of the changes in policy with the new administration, I'm curious what, um, you know, what effect do you think on sort of this growing isolationist, um, not only in the U.S., but really globally, uh, trade policies? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I should, how does this, how does that come into this? How do, how do we view that as sort of armchair economists that we're looking at? Well, uh, one of the, Phrases I like uh, about economists is if you if you laid all the economists of the world end to end they wouldn't reach a conclusion. Right. But but one of the things they do reach a conclusion about is that in general free trade is beneficial to both parties. So the the thing that is the that the administration is focused uh, on underneath that and whether they're right or wrong. Uh, is uh, a subject of debate, though not much among economists, is within each of the countries, there are distributional effects for that country. Even though in aggregate each country benefits, there are winners and losers within each, uh, within each uh, country. And that's, that's really what the discussion is about. Um, the administration is, uh, is focused on the losers and uh, suggesting that trade relationships should be adjusted. Uh, There's a consensus, complete consensus among economists that um, one of the main causes of the Great Depression was the Holly Smoot tariffs, which uh, substantially cut global trade and led to a downturn all across the globe. So there's no question there are significant risks being raised in the trade space by the imposition of, of some of the tariffs. And uh, hopefully those are ultimately more negotiating tactics and tools than they are a significant restriction of trade. And I have to say my personal view is it, it's difficult to immediately turn around 40 years of trade liberalization in its entirety. <clears throat> yeah. But uh, that doesn't mean that there there can't be some adjustments. So uh, we would we have as a risk in our forecast it, um, the trade issue uh, because of tra- tariffs that have already been imposed. Let's talk a little bit more specifically about housing. You kind of talked about it a little bit, but you mentioned the mortgage. You know the um, the housing the housing market is not. The way it was, obviously, back in 2007. Um, so, can you give me a sense for you know we have a lot of people who invest in in single family homes. We also have a lot of people who invest in multifamily. How do you see how do you see the effects of a downturn based on where those markets are right now from an investor standpoint, not necessarily from a homeowner standpoint? Yeah, from. If you look at our demographics, depending on the assumptions you make about household formation and immigration in particular, you you will 
see that current production, both of single family and multifamily properties is running somewhere between 250 and 400,000 units less than what current demographics would suggest demand would call for. So that's why you're seeing house prices appreciate at over 6% annually is because the growth of demand has been more rapid than the growth of supply. That's actually made it a good investment space, sure. uh, particularly for uh, those folks who bought single families as rentals. They've seen strong rent appreciation and also capital gain appreciation. The, the production levels at present suggest that that will continue for some time. In fact, I know that there are now some builders who are actually building single-family detached properties which are intended to be sold to investors uh, to be rented out to the to uh, to uh, home uh, households, so it's. I mean, there's a for me there's always a real simple metric that suggests why over the long haul real estate's a good place to be, and that is, it's always been the case that people lived in a structure built on land somewhere in proximity to where they worked in a structure built on land, and as long as the population continues to grow and form households, there will be demand for additional space plus uh, replacement of obsolete or um, uh, storm-damaged uh, space. So it, in, as a general proposition, it's a good place to be. Now, it does vary from region to region, typically uh, highly related to employment because in order to buy or rent a space, you have to have income. So if employment is growing more rapidly in one geography than in another, you might expect that in general housing uh, and real estate in general will do better in that place uh, than another. In some cases, you, you get a circumstance where things have done so well that you actually, that the performance of real estate actually outpaces the ability of households to afford it, yeah. you think here some places like San Jose and some other places where there's been very high level of uh, job and income growth in a place where there is a restricted availability of land, and then what you see is the you know price appreciation outstrips income growth, and and you see some start to see some slowdown. Typically, you also see out migration of employment from that area, so that the work the companies can afford to pay their workers what's required for them to live somewhere near where they work. What about how does how does that affect multifamily? Like say say you're an investor in apartment buildings like myself. Um mm-hmm. you know, I I kind of look at it at their their the investment strategy is a little different because now we're focusing on people who really can't buy homes, right? Um how does that how does that kind of all play into the to a multifamily investor? Well, it's it, it's still related to to employment yeah. because the the level of employment and income growth related to that employment also impacts the the nature of multifamily housing. And typically, Fannie Mae is very involved in multifamily. I think we have around three hundred and fifty billion dollars of uh, multifamily that we're invested in, um, and. and the, Typically, it's classified in in A, B, or C level, and that's based on rent price quality. 
what's happened recently is most of the new production has been in the A or the higher price, higher quality area. Yep. And I think you're now going to start to see some migration in some markets of some of those properties getting repriced down into the B space because it's it, it, the, the demand growth has really been at the lower end um, as the pickup in employment has brought more people off the sidelines yep. into the into the workforce, but at the lower spectrum. The, in that downturn, uh, from a Fannie Mae perspective, you can look at our, our public financial reports and you'll see the multifamily part of our business performed well through the entire downturn. Uh, and that is because some households lost their homes in foreclosure that had been single family and had to move into rentals. And you'd all, you also saw the, the share of the population that grew and was employed typically was renting as house prices were falling. So uh, multifamily did quite well. Uh, and from our perspective, it's pretty much back to normal in terms of the, the current pace of production. Uh, so it's been a, a good asset class to be in. Yeah, yeah. Now, you know, <clears throat> one of the things that I've been thinking about from the standpoint of multifamily is that, yeah, I mean, I think the, the key it in part um, is not to over leverage at this point, right? Because one of the, the real danger um, that it seems like some people, uh, you know, I have some friends in the Arizona market, um, who had these unusual situations, not necessarily with Fannie Mae loans, but with other uh, agency loans or whatever, but uh, where they were cash flowing fine, but because of the, uh, you know, the, the valuation or the cap rate mm-hmm. decompression, they were actually in, vi- in violating their, their loan covenants and, mm-hmm. and getting capital calls. Almost to me, mm-hmm. that almost seems like a bigger danger is, is at, at that point. I mean, if you have cap rate compression the way it is, do you think that's yeah. reasonable? Yeah, there's a couple things couple things to think about there. One is um, it, the multifamily um, properties are much easier to characterize as an asset class than single-family homeowner-owned uh, homes. And <clears throat> if you think of the pricing of the, those assets, using a capital asset pricing model or a discounted cash flow uh, net present value calculation, if the central bank has been holding interest rates extremely low, that's the discount rate. It means the asset values have appreciated. If the discount discount rate increases, then you'd expect to see some decline in the asset valuation. And I think that's a potential risk. I think there's also the risk that there's a lot of capital around the globe that's looking for a home. And irrespective of other things you might think about the U.S. economy, it's still the best-looking horse outside the blue factory. <laughs> that's right. That's so, right. So it's gonna, some of that capital is going to come here, and it's going to compete for, that, uh, for the multifamily space, which has been doing very well over the last decade. Yeah, yeah. So I have a, another question for you. Uh, um, you know, I... I'm curious about as a as a mainstream economist, uh, cryptocurrency uh, is becoming more and more real every day. Um, you know, distributed ledger technology, certainly in Bitcoin, uh, even though it's taking a beating right now, it looks like a bunch of institutional investors uh, sitting on the sideline, you know, waiting for custodians to you know make it possible for them to be able to get in. 
how, uh, as an economist, are you paying any attention to this right now, to this whole um, cryptocurrency phenomenon, or is it something that's really not on your radar? Well, I watch it. Um, it's not affecting my forecast today, but there's a, a two or three reasons why I pay some attention to it. I certainly wouldn't characterize myself as an expert. The um, first there's a difference between the cryptocurrency and the base technology that uh, that allows it, the di um, distributed ledger, ledger technology. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That whether cryptocurrency becomes a thing, I think, in significant part, depends on how governments react to it. And one of the, one of the libertarian impulses behind the cryptocurrency is if you could create a currency which the government can't affect, then the Fed, for example, couldn't be reducing the value of your currency by 2% annually, which is their stated target. Yeah, I, I get that, and I, I happen to agree that 0% is the best rate of inflation. Um, the, the distributed ledger technology underlying that, I think there's a lot of hopes and a lot of experimentation taking place in that, which its main driver is to reduce the size of the middleman and therefore make things more efficient yep. economically. That one, I think, is uh, is uh, fairly interesting, and I think eventually will find its way into improving processes in various industries. So if I was a middleman in something, I would be given some thought to how that might yeah, play yeah, out. Yeah, right, right. Uh, in, like a bank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, Fannie Mae. Yeah, right, know? right. So, Yeah. <clears throat> So you're going to tokenize Fannie Mae? <laughs> <laughs> well, not too long ago, at some event, I was introduced as the extinguished economist from Fannie Mae. So I, I'm uh, hoping not to fulfill that uh, expectation. That's funny. Uh, and, and in terms of, 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 of Bitcoin right now, though, you don't see it as something that really has a, an impact in the mainstream economy, per se. Bitcoin as a, as a, as a currency or a... So, Not yet. Uh, yeah. It's too volatile. It's really people are more people. I think are looking at it as an asset, and it, the the appreciation or depreciation of it is uh, what's driving, as opposed to a store of value which is constant, uh, which I think is what a lot of people are really thinking about. Now, um, not asking you to give investment advice here by any means, but I'm curious. When you think of uh, where we're at right now with the idea that uh, you, you know, what you were saying about the economy probably continuing to grow for, um, you know, another year, likely, um, you know, Ray Dalio's come out and said the same thing about, you know, the next couple of years, if you're sort of on the sidelines, you might, you might feel a little foolish. Um, mm. And then you've got, you know, sort of the inevitability of a downturn, maybe it's not as big. And then you've got this thing that people have been talking about now but in 2027 around that area which is which may be truly the zombie apocalypse or the next great depression how are you looking at this from a personal investing perspective just for yourself so i mean we won't consider it advice because we know we don't do that here on the show but but how do you see it just to kind of get in the mind of an economist well um, you can look at all the research literature, and the research literature will tell you that it's extremely difficult to time the market. So if you're if you're uh, 
kind of like I tell people who call me, I'll from time to time get just average consumer will call and say, is this a good time to buy a house? Yeah. And I'll ask them, have you, have you got a household budget? That's the first thing. And then second is if you do, and according to today's house prices and interest rates, it fits your budget, then go ahead and make the move because uh, if you're waiting for interest rates or house prices to fall, now you've moved from being a home buyer to being a speculator. And right. can you afford to be a mm. speculator? Right. So from a from a market timing perspective, that's that's a speculative kind of decision. So if it if it fits your objectives, then uh, you should you should move to align your investments to your risk appetite. If you miss out at the very top, say you miss the top 10 percent, well, you may also miss the 40 percent decline because you made that move, right? right? And a lot of people don't do the second part of the calculation and say, well, if I, you know, after it's revealed, maybe I missed 15 or 20% of upside, but I also didn't take 30% of downside. Right. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm of the view that cash is opportunistic in a downturn um, and you can buy assets on the cheap in a downturn uh, which um, which makes up for having missed some of that uh, upside if that's the if that fits your risk profile right but right. you kind of have to understand your own risk profile and and where you are in life and and what what kind of things you can you can tolerate and if you're 30 you probably have a different profile than if you're 60 right so you kind of have to adjust for those things. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. I like the sufficiently ambiguous answer there. <laughs> <laughs> it really is the individual in two ways. Right. You know your household and, and right. uh, yeah. you also know your risk tolerance. I probably have a little higher risk tolerance than some others. But. Yeah, absolutely. Well, great. This has been fantastic, uh, Doug. And, um, you know, thank you very much for being on. Tell us a little bit about where... You know, if you are if you're interested in this stuff and trying to follow what your thoughts are on, uh, you know, what's going on with the economy, can you can you give us uh, an idea where we might be able to get some of that information? Yeah, we have a segment on our website, Fannie Mae dot com, uh, that uh, there's a section on uh, uh, economics and and research. And we have lots of stuff up there from our forecast to all kinds of special topic research that we do. Uh, most of it tailored toward housing or characteristics of the economy that that generate activity in housing, but not all of it. Um, and uh, it's all free, uh, so it's just a matter of going in there. And if folks can't find it, they could just shoot a message to me or one of my staff, and we'll help them help them find it. Fantastic. Thanks, uh, thanks for being on the show again, and uh, hopefully we'll be uh, we'll do the hat trick in maybe another year and find out. We'll go we'll go back and listen to some of these. Uh, thoughts and, and compare them to where we're at. Sounds good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks again. Okay. We'll be right back. Bye-bye. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Uh, Doug is always a great guy to talk to. I mean, he's just a really good guy, and he's a great voice of reason, in my opinion. Um, as an investor, I think in times like these, we just need to make sure, uh, in my opinion, again, that we're investing in quality assets. And I think Doug echoes that, right? You can't really time these markets. And sometimes you just have to make smart investments and know that, you know, they may be ups and downs, but 
you know, if you don't invest at all, I mean, you're just, you may miss out. Um, For example, I will tell you that the only kind of real estate that I'm touching right now is where there's a really deep value add component. If you're in my accredited investor group, uh, you're seeing exactly what I mean by that, by the types of things that we're that we're um, getting involved with. By the way, I should point out, if you are an accredited investor, uh, that you should definitely ch- sign up for Investor Club at WealthFormula.com. Now, why do I say uh, deep value add? Well, listen, if even though cap rates are, are, are compressed, I don't think that people are going to argue against that. The cap rates are, are compressed right now. We can still drive net operating income up. And if we can do that, we can still effectively decompress the cost uh, of buying that asset. Um, I don't think it's a good time to personally to buy uh, things and simply hold them. Uh, I don't think that the, the, the yield is there to do that. And I think um, I've seen situations where people have, have potentially gotten themselves in trouble uh, and I also personally believe that middle markets are not a great idea right now. I know of people who have uh, invested, for example, in Oklahoma City that probably shouldn't have done that. It's, it's not a primary market. They're already, you know, they're not, a, they're not you know, thriving. But at the, on the other hand, um, I think they're, you know, they're just a, they're a recession away from losing their properties. So quality assets in primary markets with a value-add business plan. That's my focus. I don't usually just lay it out there, but that's that's really my focus. Of course, I'm also hedging with life settlements, um, with some cash, and uh, as always, uh, having, a, having a little speculative play in cryptocurrency and in um, the junior mining markets as well. But again, that is not investment advice. Do your own research. Read up more on Doug's research and uh, follow some other economists as well. And if you have a favorite, uh, send me that name at bucketwealthformula.com and tell me who you follow and why. Because no one person gets it all right, and it's a good idea to follow and listen to many. Now, one last thing. If you like the show and you want to show your love, make sure to go to wealthformula.com and uh, give us a five-star review, a five-star rating and review. Why? Because this matters a lot. It matters because that's the way iTunes and Apple rank their shows, etc. And that's how we pick up more listeners. That's how we continue to get great guests like Doug Duncan. And again, don't forget, download the Wealth Formula app. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.